Hello, I'm Junius Williams, the host of Everything's Political, and this is episode three, The Power of Stories. I'm joined by my co-host, Francesca Larson from Mosaic Strategies, and a whole lot of people from Greensboro, North Carolina. And you're going to see why we're paying so much attention to Greensboro as we proceed with our discussion. But first, let's start out, Francesca. How many of you know about the Game of Thrones? There was one person who raised, don't be shy. I see you. I see Laurel. All right. Laurel Ashton, Appalachian organizer for Raise Up and a former organizing director for the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. She and I are the only ones who watched the Game of Thrones. All right. There was a guy named Tyrion who said, there's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. Not armies or gold that unite people, but stories. So what do you think about that? Francesca, not about the Game of Thrones, but about the (laughs) power of stories. Well, I'm so glad that you asked me that question. And when I respond to what he said, I'm actually thinking about what she said first. And that would be what Maya Angelou said. When the storyteller tells the truth, she reminds us that human beings are more alike than unalike. And it is that power. It's that power of story that unites us. It's the power of story that brings us together, but it's also the power of story that breaks us apart too. So based on what you said, could we conceive that the fight for social justice is against the prevailing story of white supremacy and perhaps for the story of democracy where people can live their lives in comfort and security? I've always thought that the story of social justice is the story of democracy and that the story of white supremacy is what's battling that story of democracy or the thought of democracy. Democracy in our country has always meant white supremacy, that it's always been tied together. But the idea of democracy as it's written on paper is social justice. So when I talk about democracy, I feel like we're talking about social justice. What about the rest of you? Gathered at the beloved community center in Greensboro, North Carolina. What do the rest of you think about that? The power of story. I I want to, on the the last statement of Francesco, that this is, is the story rather than it could be the story. Is this Lewis Brandon? Yeah who's with the National Council of Elders and works at the Beloved Community Center with the Grassroots History Project. Yeah. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, the declaration and the documents that brought this country into being talks about justice, but actually we have seen through the actions of the white superstructure that that is not the case, that they're always these roadblocks and things that are put in in place to prevent the actuality of the Constitution. When I thought about this particular chapter, I wanted immediately to invite two of my friends 
from the National Council of Elders, Nelson Johnson and Joyce Hobson Johnson, who are also co-founders of Greensboro's beloved community center and conveners with others for the Greensboro Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So we're going to talk specifically about that commission, but what do you all think about that particular proposition, the power of story? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind, Juniors, is that the power of story resides in the fact that it's your story. If you find your voice and find your space, sometimes we have to create our space. In fact, that's what we're doing now to tell our truth, our story. But as we know, story um, can also be based on falsehoods. But what we do at Beloved is to base our personal stories and our collective, our community stories on truth, because we think it is in truth. In fact, we know that as, as we pursue that truth, what we say can become community truth. That's the source of really achieving what we strive for that we and others call the beloved community. There's no issue, but the stories have power. They can grip you and claim you and reshape your thinking. That's equally true of false stories and true stories. A good part of our nation's history is built upon false stories, high-sounding proclamations that rub up against the reality of what people were actually doing. There's no way you can say that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, translated people, are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the very people who wrote that had slaves and abided slavery for centuries. And the nation had to go to a civil war to get a modicum of justice out of that. So I think the issue before us is how do we get to stories that reflect a deep truth? They're not always tasteful stories, but if they are true, then that is the power that we want to use. I don't argue that false stories don't have power. But the glue that holds reality together, the foundation of enduring reality is truth. And if we don't have stories built on that, I'm afraid that it'll collapse or implode on itself. In a a piece that uh, that the two of you wrote for Voices of New Democracy, speaking about the Greensboro Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you said, It is becoming increasingly clear that the nation cannot long endure without a broader and more truthful understanding of its history and a willingness to both own and creatively engage that history so as to deal with the wounds and repair the wrongs of our yesterday. That's the end of the quote. Is that what you all are doing with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? That's exactly our purpose. That's our mission. Truth can be bitter. Truth can be painful. But if it is true, it has to be shared. And that is the corrective to falsehood. Truth is a corrective to it. And truth has the power of transforming people. It has the power of healing deep wounds that have endured too long 
and it has the power ultimately of helping people build a foundation that allow us to live together in a authentic democracy, not in um, a make-believe democracy, where uh, slices of the people are declared savages, another slice of the people are declared three-fifths of a person, and on and on it goes, diminishing our humanity. Truth actually will lift up the humanity of all, even those who oppose us. Yeah, and truth opens up so much possibility. A lie takes so much to maintain Maintain it. Um, a few of us were talking the other day about how expensive was and is segregation, apartheid in, in America. Simple things like two water fountains, just to try to maintain the vision. Right now we see fences going up and all kinds of things that don't really add to the quality of life of individuals, but more just keep the separation going, all to have a few people get more rich, rich in things and dollars, but not in life, certainly not the abundant life. But the truth opens up all kinds of possibilities because we know when you interact with people in a community setting, you learn you can do things you never thought you could do because you realize one person's ability to speak well is amplified by your ability to write well or to dance well or whatever. And that's the ideal way that the human grouping of us work in concert with each other and also with the earth on which we live, which we're trying to destroy that as well. So (laughs) truth is really something like Nelson said, it can be bitter when we have to look at errors we've made and we've all made them, but it's also freeing when we can just be who we are and become even more in concert with others. Let me say just very quickly, truth is inevitably bound up with justice. You can't have justice based on falsehood and lies. And truth and justice are linked to the possibility of healing the wounds of our yesterday. As long as people are not actually facing the truth of what happened, as long as the injustice continued to abound, there's very little possibility of authentic reconciliation. So we see those three as kind of a trinity of new possibilities. So how does that tie in with the organizing that you're doing? And and maybe somebody else wants to join in. Francesca, you want to join in with me on that? I I take that question back. Francesca, I'm going to throw it to you. I wanted to follow up on something that Reverend Johnson asked and extend this to the rest of the group. And apologies if I didn't get this question exactly as you said it, but repeating it, how do we get to the stories that reflect a deep truth? So in your organizing, and Keith, we haven't heard from you yet, how do you get to these stories? How do you get to a story that reflects real truth and in the fight for 15 and building a union? How do you get there? How do you use your own story as part of that? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, hopefully y'all can hear me well. So, yeah, in the Fight for 15, storytelling is simply, you know, I, I say it all the time. It's our secret sauce. Letting people be themselves, tell their story, their truth, what's going on with them, the, the struggles that they face on a day to day 
and the many arenas that life uh, placed them in, whether if it's on the workplace or in their job and things. And uh, one of the harsh realities of it is that a lot of our stories become real common. And so people brush it off, you know, whether if it's I make seven twenty five. Oh, yeah, I make seven twenty five at McDonald's as well. But when you give people an opportunity to express the struggles that they have with making seven twenty five, why isn't it enough? Why doesn't it go far enough? You know, why don't you have health insurance? You know, why can't you go to the grocery store and get the quality food that you want? You know, why are these things? People dive deeper into their stories. And then they get to a point where they realize that, yeah, we've all had different struggles in life. But if your story and struggle is similar to mine and is similar to other our co-workers and things, then it begins to paint a picture of that we're in this together and what's holding us down or stopping us from achieving access to the life that we want to have. And the beauty of storytelling is that if you close your eyes and listen to the stories, a lot of times you won't be able to tell the things that separate us visually, whether if it's, you know, the color of our skin or or our faith or whatever. When you listen to people's struggles, it just connects. Whether you're white, black, brown, it's the same struggles that we're facing. And the power of the storytelling is that it just brings people together from different parts and different walks of life. But how we get to that is simply just listening. As an organizer, we practice a 80-20 rule, you know, and it's listening more than you're talking. Give people the opportunity to share, to download. Everybody is so busy in life that they just keep running and running and running. But when you stop and really say, hey, how are you doing? How's things going? How was your day? Go into detail. People begin to tell you some of the most intimate details about their life and about their struggles. And the beauty of it is, is when others are able to connect into it and when you can personally can connect to it and relate to the stories as well. It inspires you to keep going as an organizer, but it inspires you to continue making the connection to others to build the community that we all are working to develop. Abigail Mosley, you are a recent graduate of Bennett College, an all-women's HBCU located in Greensboro, where you graduated as the uh, valedictorian of the class, and you were president of the NAACP. You're there working with the Beloved Community Center. What do you think about the strategy of using the commission, the Truth and Justice Commission, to get at the truth, to change the narrative? Do you think it's working? I think so. Before I came to Greensboro, I didn't have very much familiarity with Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and we have a very similar history in the police department in Cleveland with abuse, with patterns and practices of brutality against community members. And so when I came to Greensboro, I saw how community members experienced a lot of similar treatment. And so I knew that there had to be some other way to address the concerns that community members had other than violence. And that's not to say that the responses that a lot of community members have to want to fight back and achieve justice in other ways besides communicating peacefully are are invalid. But there has to be some way to achieve 
some peaceful, peaceful resolution. And so I feel the truth commission is that way. And um, I know that a lot of young organizers, especially could feel that it's a tame method of achieving peace or it's a tame method of achieving justice. But I think that if you go beyond what it seems like on a surface level, that relationship between community, between policymakers, between police officers, that type of relationship that is built on truth is actually extremely radical. It hasn't been done before. And so if you go beyond, you know, viewing it as a bureaucratic method of achieving peace, then I think people can see it as a very radical form of justice. So, Well, you might get peace, but what about justice? I think they're linked. Okay. <laughs> we were having conversations every week. We have a, a Wednesday table. And so we were talking about the difference between comfort and peace. And we talked about how a lot of people, specifically privileged people, will choose the comfort that they have, their personal comforts, over the peace of the community and why we choose that and what are we sacrificing when we choose comfort, personal comfort over peace. So I think peace is the comfort of one person is also linked to the peace of the community. And so those two things cannot be extracted from each other. But I think you also have to think about who is benefiting from what. Wesley Morris, senior pastor of Faith Community Church. And currently he is the associate director of Southern Vision Alliance. What do you think about this approach to achieve justice? I think this story approach is quite powerful. It starts off as humor for me because I remember telling stories to get out of trouble when I was a child. And the old adage, don't go around telling stories, comes to mind. But I think that that relates to how I enter into this because stories help us get closer to a reality that might be too heavy uh, for ones to hear at the outset. I go to thinking about our teacher Jesus of scripture who told parables as a way to share an ultimate reality which he held in his body, yet he was giving out to the community. He was giving out to the world by his action. And my mind also then jumps to the story of I have a dream, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's a story I was told. And the reality is that he was speaking to the huddled masses near the Washington Memorial who were being denied not only justice, but also being denied jobs. And so I'm thinking about today how stories don't help us get out of trouble, not those kinds of stories, but the stories that help us see what the trouble is and where it is. And I think it's powerful because stories touch all ages. You can say something to me and my peer group, and we'll use a whole set of language, and some of you might not know what we're talking about. (laughs) But a story is full of characters. It's full of names. It, It bridges gaps between differences. And I'm big on working across difference, and and we have to do more of that. But I think about it and how serious the realities that some of us face from day to day and how stories help us connect where we otherwise otherwise might be repelled from one another. I remember just in this back room, and I heard the stories of fast food workers. I was sitting on stairs when I wasn't in the room, so I was close, but I could hear the stories of the real disrespect of systemic pressures where there are those who are exploiting workers' time, their health, and their relationships, and in a way that they are being denied access to relating with each other to build a union. 
to be able to cry out with one unified voice. And so when I hear that, I said, let me get into that room. And the story was told in such a way that it wasn't about pity. It wasn't about weakness. It was about saying, I have human dignity. I have worth. I have value. And those stand up in a different way when you tell the story than when you're telling just the reality of your own experience. I think it's all of this works together. And as I say in our tradition, all of it works together for the good, particularly when you're being honest about your stories. And then when you confront stories about yourself that are not true, and you have to tell that with your whole heart, because <laughs> that can be weighty when you're living in a city uh, that denies you your own truth. And by denying your own truth, denies any uh, route to reconciliation. But you keep fighting. You keep pressing. You tell your story that helps people get to your reality so that they can be transformed by it. And I think, again, and I'll, I'll close with this, that, that Jesus's story and his models of teaching through parables that children could receive preserve the story and the reality of the kingdom of heaven that he preached and put that into the children, the next generation. And so when he says that I bring the good news to the poor, that's a real reality. I came to liberate those who have been made captive, to heal those who are bruised. This is actuality of a faith that is told as a story, but is ministered through your reality as a person and a human being that has dignity worth it. That was quite a story in and of it, what you just said. Mm-hmm. I was waiting for you to finish the sermon. <laughs> you got to come Sunday. Come on, Sunday. All right. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> Well, let's switch the focus a little bit. We're still talking about stories here. Recently, you've heard a lot about critical race theory. Now, originally, this was a college term to introduce the idea that racism in America is embedded in its history and all of its institutions. After the police murder of George Floyd, which everybody saw all over the world, and a million people or more went into the streets and protests, all kinds of people, all kinds of colors, status, etc. But many of the white people, especially in positions of power, said it was time to tell the truth, the truth that we've been talking about. But they have been met with strong opposition, costing in part the loss of the Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Richmond, I'm sorry, not in Richmond, but in all of Virginia. And that's taken its toll in uh, North Carolina as well. I understand that the lieutenant governor in North Carolina, Mark Robinson, who is a black Republican, went after this whole effort to teach the real story of America with an investigation where he found that students were being coerced. Can somebody talk about that? This is Bridget Raspberry. I'm the operations officer for the Beloved Community Center here in Greensboro. I think that his investigation is somewhat flawed in that it starts with the premise that what was being taught and what is currently being taught in schools is the truth, the whole truth of the founding of this country. And I think that the history as it's currently taught It does not accurately reflect the lived experience of most people here in this country. So I think that his assumption and the assumptions of many that uh, teaching critical race theory or 
what others might call culturally responsive teaching, that that in and of itself would cause some to feel uncomfortable, kind of similar to what Abby mentioned earlier, the argument between some feeling comfortable versus having true peace. And true peace comes from knowing the truth, engaging the truth, and then building uh, strategies that are founded on truthfulness as opposed to building and continuing to feed a system that's built on falsehood. So I think that is really one of the critical challenges of today is to engage truth and to figure out how do we then look at our systems and assess the effectiveness of our systems based on the truthful reality of the founding of this country. According to the New York Times, In an article entitled Free Speech Threatened, group says, and this is the quote from that article earlier this month, since January, legislatures in 24 states have introduced 54 separate bills aimed at restricting teaching and training in kindergarten through 12th grade, higher education, and state agencies and institutions by banning prohibited or divisive concepts mostly related to race, racism, gender, and American history. That's what they're doing. In your state, the governor vetoed such a bill, but the state board of education said it's about the same thing. You can't teach critical race theory. You can't teach the truth. Here's one of the things that the sixth graders were taught, which the Republicans objected to, Sixth graders were taught words like bias, discrimination, and racist. I'm going to say that again. They objected to sixth graders, for example, being conversant with concepts such as bias, discrimination, and racism. How is that a problem? Why is that such a threat to people? You want to talk about that? Uh, let's see who we haven't heard from. We haven't heard from Laurel. Yes, sir. You know, I think that one of the things that we have to name when talking about the way that critical race theory is being used today is how also not new it is. How these words that have become code words, just like forced busing or tax cuts, have been used as code words, has been part of our history for hundreds of years. And it's these are the ways that the false story of our country have been built and formed and have come together. So certainly, I think that the way in which they are really trying to police what children are taught is in response to the incredible uprising and movements from last year and the ways in which we have, through organizing, done the work of transforming this country. You know, I've, I love the phrase, the dying donkey kicks the hardest. And this is a, a, a hard kicking donkey right now. But I think it's even deeper than that. You don't even have to have any of these policies in place. I don't know if in a lot of classrooms this will take root, but the damage is being done anyway. Even if teachers never embrace this, which I know a lot that will never embrace this, they are still creating a code word 
that whether people know what it means, know how it's being implemented or not, it is reinforcing this false story, a false story which makes the divisions that are already reinforced for hundreds and hundreds of years in this country just more deeply reinforced. So it certainly it is a problem, no doubt. I'm going to jump in right now. And one thing that keeps coming up, especially in this season, is we're talking about successful organizing. I unfortunately have to say that what has been done around critical race theory and against it has been incredibly successful organizing, which hurts me to say. But from what you all have seen, what has worked why has it worked? What story are they using? What fear are they inspiring? And how do we tell the truth? Where do we go from here? If I can just uh, jump in, this is uh, Keith. Just with uh, everything that's what's been said and just even in this topic and how you even framed it as like, this is like some successful organizing. It's like they're taking it to the, they, they have a, a multi-generational plan and strategy and it's like, hey, you know, how do we disarm people of knowing how to fight, of being able to recognize the things that they are up against? It's like, well, let's take away these words from their vocabulary and let's take away this. And, and what comes to mind is like, you know, if this is so hard and embarrassing and bad to be able to teach, that is our history, then that clearly shows that there is some some healing that needs to be done. I mean, it's almost them admitting, saying that this is so bad that we don't want to talk about it and we want to forget about it. But if we forget about it, then people will fall into similar traps. You know, they don't want to talk about bias and discrimination and races. These are the things that we, that doesn't have to get talked about, but things that we face every day that's going on. So if we don't want to talk about it, then we need to address the issues so that, you know, these things are, are things of the past, and we can be able to talk about these things of, of being of the past, but because they're still, you know, alive and, and rampant today, it's how do we, you know, get disarm people from from being able to, like uh, Laurel said, from being in the streets and protesting because they're aware from a young age of what's going on. But, you know, part of that also is organizations like like ours and like the Beloved Community Center, every time you go in there, you're learning. From the moment you walk in the door, history meets you. Some hard to look at, but it's the truth. You know, you're faced with the truth and you can't argue with it. And that's also the power of stories is that it is the truth. You cannot argue with people, personal experience and things that, and what's going on. And so organizations like Raise Up for 15 and like coming to places like Beloved Community Center is places that we have to keep these, uh, have to keep the history, but also the stories alive so that whether they teach it in public school or whatever, they still, they have a community that's teaching them this information that, and they can't censor the knowledge and the things that we teach and whether if it's in our organizations, places of worships, or even in our households. Well, let's put aside the question of healing, because no question you're right about that. And I listened to the great work that's been done at that beloved community center and uh, what you all are doing with that whole question of truth is healing. They seem to be winning. 
they seem to have set the Democratic Party or put the Democratic Party on notice. We're coming after you on this issue, and they have people's attention. Here's another article from the New York Times recently, and this is about a guy who nobody ever heard of, somebody named uh, Rufo, who was a Republican organizer. Let me just read a little bit in this article. A year ago, few conservatives outside of academia had heard of critical race theory, a graduate school approach to the study of race and power. We went over that earlier. This guy, in the context of the Glenn Youngkin victorious gubernatorial campaign in Virginia, he says, I've unlocked a new terrain in the culture war and demonstrated a successful strategy said Rufo, a documentary filmmaker-turned-conservative activist, we are right now preparing a strategy of laying siege on institutions. The public schools are waging war against American children and American families, he said. Families, in turn, should have a fundamental right to exit the school system or, in the case of the election in Virginia, to vote out the Democrats and vote in the Republicans. So the question is, what impact does the strength of this dominant, prevailing cultural narrative have on our ability to organize, especially the Democrats? What are they going to do? This is Lewis. I don't know about the organizing bit of it, but I think what we have to really do is look at the media, our media, and, and particularly our so-called liberal media, that they tend to keep propagating these stories when they know that they are false and are not true and insist on on running them because they're in competition with somebody else. We as a, a, a body have to get control of the media. And probably the best way to do that is beginning to tell our own stories and to try to combat some of this stuff that ex- exists in the uh, airways now. But liberal media, to me, is one of the major problems. Well, we have the liberal media and we have some progressive media. I include them, too. Is that enough? As we as organizers, what should we be doing to make sure the Democratic Party doesn't go south on us and say, hey, we got to pick these people up. So we got to stop thinking about telling the truth. Well, for me, it's not about party. You know, people talk about Robinson in North Carolina as being a Republican. Robinson is an opportunist. That's what he is. And so if something else comes along, he will jump and become a part of that bandwagon. So we got to really start focusing on Democrats and Republicans and really talk about what truth is. Anybody else? Yeah, I'll share a point that, and it connects the critical race theory in schools with this organizing and us staying on message and heightening the contradictions that people are experiencing and living out every single day. And the power of teaching youth what they already experienced, the why of it. I think about Dorothy Soleil, who is a liberation theologian who coins a term, dangerous memory. Talks about a dangerous memory is right underneath all of this suffering. If you remember where you come from, you remember the things you've overcome. And all of this suffering, unearned suffering, that In the midst of that, yes, we have created great music. We have powerful songs. We have wonderful thinkers and writers and engineers and leaders out of our community. But underneath that 
is still this memory that lingers about how we had to come over in this country. And so those that are youth that are experiencing the reverberations and the ripple effect, uh, maybe they don't know the epicenter. But if they do know, then you can organize and pull together that power base. And this goes to our memory. <laughs> we have to remember the memories that come from our tradition, because these communicators of the liberal media or any media that you, uh, Mr. Brandon referenced, it's that they put out an idea of what happened. They put out their messaging. And for us to, to live into that denies us our own truth. And so the poetic, again, Lucille Clifton is, is something that I go to often and I want to read it to you. It's a short poem. They asked me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories. And I keep on remembering mine. Mm. And that poem, that short poem is titled, Why Some People Be Mad at Me Sometimes. <laughs> and I think that that's why people are mad. We're saying we're here to remember our memories. And not only that, to tell the truth about it. So those that have impacted us over generations can also come to the table and be reconciled. I'm not here to launch at people and try to begin wars or conflicts of label, contracts of words, but it's actually seeing the person that is named my enemy as somebody who is able to be redeemed in the same way that this nation and all of its bloodshed has to be redeemed. But it's only redeemed if the people want it and the people do it. And so I'm here communicating that to you. And I wanted to say thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit with you. I do have to go to Bible study. <laughs> Mr. Williams, I'd love to add to that as well. You know, you're asking the question, how do we organize in the context of widespread falsehoods and in this reality that we live in? And I like a point that Francesca made earlier that is about how organizing is neutral. It is not necessarily for good or for truth or for falsehoods. Organizing is a neutral word and every community is being organized. Just some of them are being organized towards lies, organized towards falsehoods. And that is effective organizing that is taking place across this country. And it is organizing that has chosen to not leave out any corner of this country. And, you know, I agree with what my friend Liz Brandon said, that it's not about party. But if we are going to talk about the Democratic Party, I'll say that the Democratic Party is not organizing in every corner of this country. And there's a whole lot of nonprofits. There's a whole lot of unions. There, I work for a union, but there's a whole lot of unions. There's a whole lot of movements that are not organizing in every part of this country. We're here in North Carolina. We are in the South. The South knows us better than anywhere. So it's, you know, to me, we just have to remind ourselves that organizing is taking place and we have to be there to organize as well. You know, I'm excited to be with my friends here in Greensboro, but I live in Western North Carolina, where we are unlucky enough to be represented by Madison Cawthorn. And he has been actively organizing. You know, he was turning out parents along with his wealthy allies to school board meetings to speak against children wearing masks in schools. And schools were getting shut down left and right because of massive COVID outbreaks. That was organizing towards falsehoods. And so often there is not counter-organizing taking place or organizing for truth taking place in those places. Um, and I, you know, what I love about Beloved Community Center, what I love about Raise Up and Fight for 15 is that we're saying, no, those are the places where we not only have to take root, but we can take root. And so often we decide, let's just go for those low fruit. But no, it's not high fruit. It's not low fruit. Everybody 
is ready to make changes in their lives because everybody is struggling right now. And if we don't follow sometimes the falsehoods that are presented within our own movement, like the demonization of poor white people or like the South is off limits, if we don't fall into that, then we can really be part of, I think, the type of good organizing we need. And and I do think that sometimes organizing with lies is a little easier because it's building upon 400 years of lies, 400 years of a narrative that is dividing people. And I think primarily around racism and white supremacy, that is, I think, a primary force in this country, but also along other lines of, of division and difference among people. And we have to fight this uphill battle, but every single corner of this country deserves us being there fighting it. That's right. Lewis and Junius, Nelson and myself think that the 1950s, then along comes these pictures in Jet Magazine of Emmett Till. So there was a lot of suffering and what have you. You know, there was an NAACP. There are different things that were going on. But yet that truth that hit people, people already knew it because they'd had they'd lost loved ones. They had nurtured back to life people who'd been almost killed by a police beating or just a person walking down the street didn't like the way they looked, whatever. So we're in a period like that now where the truth really can set us free. So we are building spaces, Francesca, here at Beloved, and we're moving all around the state to create a model for how this whole country can be prepared to just not just not to know the truth, but prepared to know how to work with one another. As Nelson says a lot, to walk toward one another with our stories, because our stories don't just capture us as in one feature. You're a worker, you're a male, you're a female, you're a whole person. But we can learn to walk toward each other so that we can figure out how to walk together toward this beloved community. So just think back, the history has shown us that there are these dark periods. But if someone is doing that work underground, just like plants grow underground. So we're doing the preparatory work now with this truth process. And we're working on things like police accountability, the terrible abuse of power by police, but also the terrible abuse at the workplace that our friends Laurel and Keith work with every day, the oppression of women, the marginalization in just huge ways of people from LGBTQ community, and just the oppression on young people themselves. I don't know what's happening in your, in your city, but my adopted city, Greensboro, there are too many young people that we're burying who are dying at the, the hands of their own friends, their family along with those who are being abused by the police. We can and we must engage all of that with the truth as we hear one another's stories of hardship, but also the stories of how we got over in the past and how we're going to really get over in the future. Very quickly, there are several ways. One is that we have a community table, and we've been online, and we have people not only from Greensboro, North Carolina, but all over the nation every week. And... Um, while we are not able to do the kind of in-place training that we've been doing over the years, we still carry it on. And one of the main things we do is rename and reframe. And uh, on the issue we've just been talking about, Laura mentioned that a dying mule kicks harder. The actual desperation reflected by the lieutenant governor and the discussion we just had is not because they're winning. It's because they're losing. 
millions of people got on the street after George Floyd and uh, started to expose a depth of white supremacy that had not previously happened. And in that context, they react to it. And I think we've got to reframe that. And then that encourages us to step into it. We're not losing. They actually are just taking advantage of a moment. But they objectively have organized thousands of teachers who don't know they've been organized yet. (laughs) They're going to have to rise up against this. If they rise up against it, parents are going to rise up against it. And so in some sense, they might sow the wind, but they're going to reap the whirlwind. And I think we've got to, in our organizing training, help people to see things through a different lens. What looked like a short-term victory is a long-term catastrophe. If we know how to read it and step into the place that it opens up for us, it opens up a whole dimension of history that people have to do in churches, on the street corner, in beloved community centers all over. So I would end with that. You know, it's difficult, but in one sense, it opens a wider gate for the work that we're trying to do. A dying mule kicks harder. Hang on to that. (laughs) I really, really, really thank you for that. I want to thank all of you. I wish we could continue, and maybe we will pick up this conversation at another time. But I want to thank all of you from Greensboro, centered around the beloved community center and all of the work that you're doing with uh, fighting for unions, fighting for the $15 minimum wage, fighting to tell the truth. I appreciate all of that. Uh, So on behalf of Francesca Lawson and myself, we bid you a fond farewell. This is our episode three coming to you in November. Next month, we're going to be coming to you with another episode of Everything's Political, where we talk about something that I entitled for purposes of discussion only, Am I Black Enough, Baby? (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to talk about the origins of Black power, how it works, and we're going to ask some young people, well, do you all think about it the same way we did? So uh, thank you. Stay tuned. And goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. This is Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. Everything's Political podcast is sponsored by the Center for Education and Juvenile Justice and supported by the Terrell Foundation and listeners like you. It is produced by Mosaic Strategies with theme music by Anthony Ant Jackson. Like what you hear? Subscribe to Everything's Political Podcast on Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for exclusive behind-the-scenes content.